Welcome to episode number 110 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about alternatives to dust collection and specifically in coal burning applications. To do that, we have on the call Blake Nelson. Blake, thank you for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast today. And welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have Blake on. This topic came out of some discussions inside the Dust Safety Academy, I was having with some of Blake's co-workers around challenges with dust collection systems. And we'll, we'll get into what these challenges are in the interview. But at some point or another, the person I was talking to mentioned that that's when they removed their dust collection systems from some of their plants. And I thought this was a big undertaking. It was kind of interesting to hear. So I started down the road of asking questions around that and eventually was introduced to Blake as the person to talk to to understand what happened. So in today's interview, we're going to talk about Blake's background a bit. What experience do they have with dust collection systems and their processing operations? Um, what did the challenges look like? And then what were the alternatives that they identified and, and how did they do that switchover process? I just want to wrap up with any sort of lessons learned through this entire process from Blake's experience. As always, you can grab a copy of the transcripts of this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 110. That's for 110. I really look forward to the discussion. So, Blake, I think the best place to kind of jump in and just to give the lay of land for folks is, can you just share some of your background and, and what role you had in, in industries that were handling combustible dust and powders? Um, sure. Starts a long time ago. I started in the utility, coal utility um, industry in 79. I believe I was 20. I spent 20 years as a uh, equipment operator, um, several years as a fuel yard foreman, then about 20 years as the fuel yard supervisor. Um, I did end up over in operations, but probably the 20 years as a supervisor is as well we'll talk about yeah i guess even you mentioned you were in utilities but what kind of i mean what did the processing operation look like what were you you burning and maybe what did the the type of plant you'd be working with look like so the plant that i was stationed at we, we had several plants in the fleet was about uh maybe a 500 megawatt um coal burner um, when I started, it was actually an oil burner, but coal is a backup. Eventually, coal got so cheap that we converted it all to coal. We have our Jeffries Energy Center, which has three 700 megawatt units, I believe they are. We had several gas units that are been decommissioned. We had a coal, a smaller coal plant, about 120 megawatts. Um, Tecumseh Energy Center that was decommissioned and has, has been torn down. So when we got into dust collecting, gosh, probably 98, 99, when I became supervisor, our coal buyers at corporate had started hearing about PRB coal, which is in uh, mid-Wyoming, and it was cheap. I mean, I'm talking maybe $3 a ton when we were paying 12 something a ton for Colorado, basically. And so they jumped on that um, and started sending it to us. We did a few test burns to see how it would uh, react in the, the mills and boilers. I had issues there, but that's not my expertise. But the coal handling 
we realized really quick um, that, wow, the dust was terrible. Um, it was just 10 times as bad as Colorado coal. It would catch fire real easy out on our uh, stockpile inside the bunkers. And they started, the plant started complaining um, to the higher ups. And uh, so how they responded to that is they sent all of us out to the, the mines and PRB. I believe we went to Black Thunder, Eagle Butte, a um, couple others. And we got to know the people who told them we was having the problems and, you know, they were not surprised. Um, the short story is we ended up actually hiring two of the people we'd met at the mines, a Mark Mayworm and a Randy Rom, uh, to come down and uh, help us deal with the problems that we were seeing. And uh, one of the first things we did, and, and I'll tell you, front, we did a lot of things backwards um, because we had no clue what we were really getting into. You know, you see that cheap coal and those dollar signs, and that's kind of was the driving force back then, which is understandable back in those days. It might not be so understandable now. But So the first thing we looked at really wasn't even our conveyor system. It was dust collection. Now, Jeffrey's Energy Center already had a bunch of old dust collectors. Lawrence decided to put a dust collector in. We went with uh, Air Cure Science. I don't even know if they're still in business or not, but it was actually a very good dust collector. It kept took care of the dust problem. We never had any fires in this particular dust collector. It had a fire suppression system inside of it. It worked as advertised. But we also started noticing about this time um, that a lot of other power plants were having explosions and fires and it got our notice. There was a man, first he was our uh, plant director and then he became vice president of the company, um, John Britson. And uh, one of your questions you asked me is about buy-in. So actually we got the buy-in from the top down and and uh, on decommissioning these uh, dust collectors. Um, John Britson was the driving force. That sounds like I'm kissing up, but it, it's the truth. So I want to kind of give a, a bit of a summary, Blake, on that, because it was really interesting is hearing you talk through those different elements. So I just want to start by the processing operation. I sort of drew an image here on my sheet because there's a there's a couple different layers where combustible dust can come in here. So you have your stockpiling of raw material, you then transport that to bunkers, that gets transported then to your mills and then gets, you know, transported to the burners that you guys are using. Does that sound like a, a fair summary, at least a, a really high level summary of what the processing operation looks like? Yes, that's that's real close. And the the, the problem with PRB is every time you touch it, it degrades and, and falls apart. So from the minute they bring it up out of the, the ground, put it in a train is another touch point. The trip to wherever it's going is a touch point. You unload it to the stockpile or to the plant, whichever is a touch point. Your conveyor system, however long, every time you go through a transfer from one conveyor to the next, you're breaking down the coal. And so it's just, a, I mean, it just falls apart from the minute you bring it up out of the ground. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's a there's a, a bunch of 
pieces that I want to come pull out of this. But one was that you you did you had a you know a, a material switch. So you're using I missed the coal you're using at first, but you moved to I believe Powder River Basin coal. Would that be PRB? Yeah. So you moved to a different raw material, and any material that you you transfer from point A to point B is is going to wear down through attrition. It's just a question of how fast does that happen. So this new material, the new coal, you were seeing much more rapid breaking down while you were shipping it, while you're conveying it, probably while you're milling it, although it's supposed to break down at that point. <laughs> and you were just seeing higher levels of, of dust. So then that's when the discussion came in around, okay, well, let's install some dust collection systems. That seems like a logical thing that a lot of a lot of folks would do. It sounded like you you didn't have challenges with the first dust collection system you installed but at the same time you were seeing um, your company was seeing these industry trends where other folks in your industries were having these fires and explosions so i want to i want to delve into a couple different areas of this kind of i don't know map that i just laid out the the first one is on this raw material were you having the same level of challenges with the old you know, the original kind of coal you were using and what do you think is the difference between um, the the PRB that's causing that to be such an issue in the the other material. Uh, no, uh, we were getting our coal from Colorado, several mines um, in Colorado, and you probably can address the bituminous versus subbituminous better than I can types of coal. But no, we we didn't have any trouble with the Colorado coal. It was extremely high BTU up in the twelve even touching maybe 13,000 range. Okay. So we had sort of this material change. You installed one dust collection system and it seemed to work all right. At what point did you start? I mean, I, I do want to circle around, circle back to the buying because that's a really important part. But I want to see, you, you were seeing these fires and explosions in other industries. When did you start experiencing them at your own site or, or was there even a time when you started experiencing them at your own site? And what did that process look like? Yeah, I don't want to mislead you. So I'm talking about the plant that I specifically worked at in our first dust collector. Now our other plants, I'd already had them and they had a completely different type of dust collector and they were having fires in them. Um, We never had a big explosion, but we definitely had fires and they were constantly fighting them. I will say the ones we installed at Lawrence, we didn't have those issues, but we knew that it was just a matter of time before we did. So then what, what was John's last name? I missed that. John Britson. So at one time he was our plant director out at the plant. Um, he eventually became our, and still is, vice president, maybe different title now. He was, so there is a, uh, a group called PRB Coal Users Group. Um, that's kind of how we found out about Randy Rom and Mark Waite, Mayworm, um, at the mines. And John got heavily involved with that group. Um, they advise you on how to burn combustible, high combustible coal. Um, that was their whole purpose. Now I just checked on them and they've changed their name to American Coal Users Group. Because of the crazy times we live in now, they've included all coals, Illinois, Colorado, Appalachian. So it's not just PRB that they're focusing on anymore. And we'll include a link to the coalusersgroup.org website here because I know from my work, uh, I think I think Bob Taylor is there and a couple other folks that have been really helpful in pushing combustible dust safety in, in coal 
um, handling coal uh, using applications over the years. So it's interesting to hear that that link was made. So we'll include links to, to folks that are interested in in that to, to learn more. What happened when you started working with those groups then? Like how did the idea of removing the dust collection systems come about? Well, that was mainly, I don't know that that came from PRB, but that was mainly John's idea. And so we had heard, we'd heard of all these instances where there'd been fires or explosions. And even to this day, some of our plants, of course, we merged with another company, but some of our plants still have fires in their uh, dust collectors. And in fact, I was told that some of our dust collectors have just been taken out of service because of that. Haven't been removed yet, but they've been taken out of service, cleaned, and uh, will eventually be, we want the whole fleet to not have dust collectors. So, and then there was one particular instance, and I can't remember if it was up in Minnesota or Wisconsin, but they'd taken a dust collector out of service to work on it. They thought they'd cleaned it out, and apparently they didn't and they got inside started welding blew up i i cannot remember if there's fatalities i know people were hurt and i think that was kind of the last straw um for john and the rest of the company and, and so we then called in um some outside companies to look at our options um, we got our uh engineers on what it would take to get rid of ours. Uh, since Lawrence only had one um, dust collector, we decided to uh, make it kind of the uh, the test, see how that would work. There is a lot involved in removing a dust collector. I mean, there's a lot to get. You got to get it permitted by the state. Once you have that permit, you have to run it. You just can't decide, oh, one day we're not going to run it today and run it tomorrow. When you do that, you have to promise the state, and they come in and check that there's a. Um, you can control the dust just as well without the dust collector as you could with the dust collector. And what did that look like? What kind of alternative solutions were discussed, and then maybe what did you end up doing after? What was the plan when you're moving those systems to keep the dust levels down? So we brought the PRB coal users group in to audit our plant. We bought in outside uh, independent people. Um, one company that. We worked with a lot, Benetech, um, Pete Zeneker was, was my contact there. And they do audits. And I mentioned earlier that we did things really backwards when we started burning coal. So the first thing that any plant should do that's having these kind of issues that wants to get rid of a dust collector is go through their conveying system and it's called passive dust control. And basically it is, the, the old systems, one conveyor would toss it onto another conveyor, and a lot of times it, you would just slam the coal into a uh, piece of iron, and it would drop down to the next conveyor. And so you really want to force that into a string so that it's, it's like one continuous conveyor. And so you control the airflow inside your conveyors. You control any uh, uh, impact points um and et cetera et cetera so we brought in outside companies to audit our system and uh then we acted on whatever their report said but passive passive dust control is really easy but it's expensive so that would be like adding 
spouts at transfer points, making sure your airflow doesn't have, say, turbulence in it. So it's kind of kicking things up. You mentioned impact points. Like hood and spoons were the big thing in my day. I assume they still are. So instead of slamming against the wall, falling down onto the next conveyor, you have a hood that grabs the coal and then it lowers it down into a spoon that then shoves it's, it's almost like a water stream and they can model that and they can show you where the air is at and where the dust at and uh, just doing that alone so you got belt cleaners clean off the belt dust off the belts you've got wear liners um, to keep the coal centered um, there's just the, the belt itself you need to keep the belt fairly new and not let it crack and, and get holes in it and then these Auditors will help you with all that. Uh, Martin Engineering was another good one, but Benetech was our primary one. What was the second one? I missed that. Martin Engineering. Okay. So you mentioned a lot around the conveyors, adding passive dust control, so hood and spoons. And I can I can kind of picture the way you're saying it. Before, it was just slamming into the end of a metal plate and dropping, which you can imagine, if you think of, uh, if you were doing that with a bag of powder, that would be the the way to create the biggest dust cloud <laughs> would be to slam it against the plate and let it drop. So you're talking about creating more gradual flow so that it's more like a water tap where you see the water dropping into the next and kind of smoothly transitioning between the conveyors. Belt cleaners, wear liners, maintenance inspections, so you're placing the belts before they get to the end or past the end of their usable life. Uh, were there any other, we'll say, technology solutions that you you looked at and implemented with these systems? Yeah, so so once you get your house in order that way, and I can't stress how important that is, a lot of places will try to skip that because it can be expensive. Well, you can do that when you have your dust collector running too. It's going to make your dust collector life last longer. It's going to reduce the, the issues you have in your dust collector. They're not exclusive. That, that's, that's correct. But so there was a time though that when plants didn't, worry about that stuff and there's still and i visited quite a few plants and there's still quite a few plants that don't worry about it so they may have enough manpower that they're not going to spend the money on their conveyors and they'll just send the guys down there once a week to to scoop up and clean up coal the the objective is that you don't need that you don't need anybody cleaning your your conveyors and so it's it's a mindset and there's a lot of plants that have, have change their mind and doing the right thing. Um, but I'm aware of several plants that still do it the old way and are not, you know, it's kind of like your fuel tank on your car. I mean, do you ever really think about it? Most people don't. So what uh, you mentioned, there were some other engineering solutions. Did you, what did those look like? Okay. So we also looked at water. So water at one time was a big no, no. Of course, the object was to get everything into that mill as dry and perfect as, as possible. So we on our own started just spraying water everywhere. Well, water's not really good. It does not, it's not really a good dust control. So we brought in, again, some consultants to look at uh, dust suppression. And basically that you just apply at certain transfer areas onto the coal handling system. And it's a chemical, um, I think we use 210, I can't remember the, the letter now, but it breaks down the uh, 
surface of the uh, dust and lets the water soak in. So we ended up going with Benetech on that. Mike probably has some video, or I used to have some video to show you the difference between running uh, without the uh, dust suppression versus with the dust suppression. And it's pretty amazing. Um, If the dust suppression's run right, installed correctly, and you actually get by, this is where the real buy-in comes from, is from your labor, from your operators, from your skilled craft to run the thing and run it efficiently. Um, Some of the old timers had a tendency to they were pounded so for so many years not to put water on coal now all of a sudden we're saying no we're going to run all this water so some of them balked um, but eventually that changed when they seen the results anything else that we're missing so I, I guess we could call that active dust control if we're calling the other passive that would be applying these mists and i think they're i mean you can use water i think the the systems maybe it's a, like a vegetable oil or I'm not sure what it is, but some sort of uh We always called it like a, a dishwater soap, but um, Benetech would disagree with that. <laughs> we'll, we'll, get, we'll reach out to Benetech and get them, because I've seen their videos, and they are really interesting to see the conveyors. And, you know, the conveyor on the left has a dust cloud around, and the conveyor right on the right doesn't. Any other kind of engineering technology that's worth mentioning? So that's really pretty much it. So you want to... Keep it simple, um, as the old saying goes. And uh, going back to the actual uh, decommissioning that dust collector, so we did, we have our own environmental department. We did hundreds of tests before, after we'd run it, even when it was still in service. We would take it out of service and run it and see how the dust suppression was doing, how the passive dust suppression was doing. This was a, quite a long process. KDHE, Kansas Department of Health, stays on top of that, that stuff. And so we were eventually uh, permitted to run, to decommission the dust collector and run dust suppression. Now, the dust suppression is the same once you get a permit. You have to run it. It's not a, oh, I don't feel like running it today. The only issue you run into there is if it's been raining a lot we will shut it off. But other than that, it stays on. So just like relative time, you don't need the exact, uh, you know, cost of the equipment, but in terms of years, how many years, I think how many years did this process take? The original dust collectors that you put in just round numbers, were they tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars? Because I can imagine that there's some sunk costs there that, that is probably hard to overcome when you install those systems to to start looking at alternative solutions so yeah how like in terms of time and, and money how much did this cost you folks yeah and so and that's what the, the business guys looked at but i know the dust collector to install was right about five million but not cheap now that was at the time that was a modern that and again it was a good dust collector um, um we just wasn't willing to uh sacrifice the safety though and it's still going. I mean, we still we still have plants with dust collectors, and it's just you, you've got to spend that money on the passive, and you've got to decide do you want uh, dust suppression. And then we merged with another company, so it's just it's a constant thing that John Britson's still working on to 
to get them out of service. Well, that's probably even a better answer than saying the number of beers. It's not, that's not the right way to look at it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a constant state of improvement. Um, it's probably still going on. What, what was the outcome? Did you see after all this effort, you know, was there, you know, was there less dust, better hygiene conditions, less fires, you know, less risk? Like uh, you went through this whole experience of, of doing this. What, what were some of the outcomes that you saw? So back it up just a second. Another system we put in, and you asked this question, and I, it didn't occur to me. So we put washdowns in all of our conveyors. So you still have dust. It doesn't matter what you do. That PRB is going to um, emit a certain amount of dust. So we put washdowns, basically lines with nozzles. We made them. Most of them are automatic. Uh, the operator can sit in the control room and activate them. So we actually wash our bunker room, our conveyor belts that are inside. We wash them down twice. They were washing them down twice a day. So that's another system. Uh, and that's not cheap either. So um, nothing like a dust collector, eh, maybe 500,000 for the last one that I was involved in installing. And then if you put in the, uh, actuators to make it automatic then the price increases quite a bit um so i jumped back there what was your next question i'm sorry so we implemented these systems just was there a redu reduction in the number of fires you were seeing or process safety loss or employee morale like what, what were some of the outcomes of um making these changes over a period of you know several years so at first uh, employee morale was not good because Again, we we might shut down once a week and go clean up, and it was a mess. The coal was leaking everywhere. It was labor-intensive. And, of course, there's always when you start implementing something new, you get a lot of people that don't want to go with the flow. So we had a little bit of pushback. But eventually, as I seen all these changes come that made their lives so much better, uh, they weren't cleaning all the time. They weren't dirty all the time. They didn't necessarily – have to take a shower at the end of the shift like they used to all the time. They were pretty happy with the system. And, and I think that's one of the most important things uh, that gets overlooked is keeping your employees safe. And happy may not be the right word. I mean, we're not responsible to make them happy, but satisfied and proud of their jobs. Um, it's hard to be proud when you're uh, – covered in coal dust and shoveling coal and then come back the next day and you got another pile to shovel. So that's an important part of it was the morale did pick up quite a bit. So I want to circle back because you mentioned at the very start and I think there's a couple of key issues around this for um, getting buy-in from getting buy-in from management is one part of it but it's a bigger question that I, I really the reason we have this podcast is I strive to get results in industries that have the the risk of a combustible dust explosion. So if you're out there today, you're, you're thinking about this, that you're listening to this podcast and you're realizing that you see your facility in some of the things we're saying, but you don't know how to go about starting that process of convincing your management or, or convincing your, your operations team or labor, whoever it is to start going down this road. Like I want to just try to uncover some of the, the lessons learned on that side from your experience. So you mentioned one around buy-in from upper management. Maybe is there anything you can say in addition to what you've, you've already said on that? So we, like I said, we were very fortunate that John Britson was kind of leading that. If 
I was in a situation where there was not a John Britson involved, it's going to be a hard sell because they're, they're going to spend money in places that they rarely paid attention to. Um, my suggestion would be you get the PRB coal users group involved, take trips. We took hundreds of trips to look at other power plants. We had, uh, I can't remember, I don't, I'm not going to mention the plant because I can't remember which plant it was, but we did have a plant that had a major explosion. Mike can fill you in on that if, if you want to dig deeper. And when you see what can happen, it, it's very sobering. And the loss of one life isn't, isn't worth all the megawatts you can make. So I think there's a couple of things there. I mean, the point's well taken. And the, the thing that I struggle with when, even if I go give a, a training presentation, you know, run a room of 60 people or whatever it is, unless I can make them see the hazard and the result, the deflagration, the fire in their own conveyor, when they look at it, their own hammer mill, their own burner, whatever it is in their own um, environment, then, then it's quite hard to convince people that this is going to be a problem. So you really, the point that you made was go talk to people in your industry, go see their plants, go, if you can get to a point where you can open up as an industry and talk about the challenge that you're having, because that's the, the best way to translate that knowledge instead of having to live through the, the explosion of the fire yourself. That's right. And unfortunately, there's a reluctance sometimes with different uh, utility companies to open up about, and being honest, that's why PRB Coal Users Group um, is a great resource because they do business with all the utilities, most of them, and they can cut through all that you know, the secrecy and all that. So I got two kind of points here that I pulled out of this actually getting change to happen. So the first one you mentioned is around buy-in. And if you read the Center for Chemical Process Safety guidebook on implementing process safety, which I happen to have on my desk thing here, so it's just reminding me of this, but they'll say that you really need a, a champion for your process safety program and a sponsor for your process safety program. So the champion is the person who's boots on the ground or implement or interfaces with boots on the ground, um, sort of like your level. I, you, maybe you were the kind of the champion for your your facility. We also need a sponsor, somebody who interfaces with the higher ups. And the best case is if that sponsor is the vice president, you know, COO, CEO, if, if you can get to that point where they have that buy-in that they're going to commit their own time and their own resources to sponsor that, then I, I've seen that really help we have some wood pellet um, companies here in Canada where that's the case, where I'd say the sponsor for, for process safety is also the, you know, a member of the executive team. That's really powerful. So that's kind of one thing to look at. But then on the other side, talk to people in your industry, see what they're experiencing. And you almost need a champion there as well. So I've seen that you're mentioning the coal users group, um, the PRB coal users group was sort of that champion that act as interface between companies. The wood pellet association of Canada sort of access that sponsor that champion for process safety and with pellet mills in Canada. Um, and they, everyone that's on that committee has a, on the, on the safety committee there, you, you hear it almost every, every meeting. So I sit on them sometimes that we don't compete on safety. So if they have an incident, they'll share it. And if they have a, a lesson learned, they share it. So that's a really good about transferring information from one industry to another. I, there's one kind of hidden thing here and I, I, I don't know the answer to it and you may not know the answer either, but I've been trying to search for it. And that's in terms of justifying the kind of capital expense for this process safety initiatives. But I've been trying. I've been seeing the companies that remove process safety 
expenses. So losses, employee time or cleanup, response to fires, loss of equipment, out of operational expenses, tracking them separately. So it's just not the cost of doing business, but you have some sort of ledger that this is what not having systems that are operating safely cost us. If you can move that out into other into its own area, then you have some benefit to say, okay, well, if we spend this much on redoing our, our dust control system, then this is the kind of benefits that we'll see. We'll see less manual requirements, uh, man hours, people hours for cleaning. Um, you know, we'll ex- hopefully experience only four fires a year instead of seven. And, you know, that's probably, probably save you a couple million dollars right there. I guess, do you have, those are just some random thoughts from myself, but do you have any input on that? Have you seen this challenge where, Sometimes incidents and those sort of things get wrapped into OPEC, operational expenses and just are seen as the cost of doing business or am I, am I off base and this isn't even sort of important for getting buy-in? If I understand you right, there's a huge tension between doing the right thing as far as, as spending the money on the dust collectors and all that, that versus, hey, we got to make money for our, our shareholders. Um should we be spending money here? Or should we be spending money there? Uh, again, that's why you need to buy in from up above. We also have outside influences. I, I mentioned to you uh, Kansas Department of Health. OSHA is a huge one. Even though we rarely see OSHA, they came out a few years ago with uh, a dust initiative and national emphasis program yeah. on combustible dust yeah there you go so they actually had a way of measuring and they'd come out and uh, they didn't cut you a lot of slack and so that was a big driver we was able when we went to to the budget hearings that was a huge driver in uh, getting that at the forefront we also whether good or bad you know i'll leave it up to listeners as we upgraded all of our systems, as we got done away with the need for always cleaning, we also reduced our, our workforce. So one time I was supervising 21 people to do the job. And when I retired a year ago, there was see, eight people, I believe, eight, not eight or nine people. So that's good from a business point of view um, that you can do it safer, more efficiently, cleaner with fewer people. Now, if you ask the the labor unions and all that, they would disagree, but that's something you'll have to decide for yourself. I think in the end, it's a good thing and it's just the way the progression goes. I mean, you just can't can't fight it. Well, I appreciate you sharing it because it's it whatever the opinion is it's 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 the tr- it's really what happens, right? <laughs> if you're if you're paying um, fifteen people to go around cleaning up fugitive dust all day, then that's a that's a, a challenge and a, and a problem in itself. And those are the exact things I was thinking. They're, they're like, can you make a case financially for operating safer, and then actually get these safety systems implemented? So yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I guess to kind of close up the interview, this has been tremendously insightful for me. I've I've learned about some new engineering technologies I didn't know as much about processes, difficulties around, you know, removing dust collection systems, challenges with dust collection systems. I've learned more about coal and, and utilities than I knew before for sure. Uh any other kind of recommendations to to leave folks off with if you're in an industry that's handling these type of powders or combustible dust? I think your 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 biggest one 
around conveying systems and and trying to improve that whole process to reduce the dust, even if you're not replacing your dust collectors is a big one. But anything else from your experience that you want to make sure we share before we close out the episode? Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, so one is uh, it's an ongoing thing. I mean, you're just never there. I mean, you don't install a dust suppression system and say, hey, we got this. You have to constantly maintain it. We have a department, well, Mike, Mike Gill. So he goes, I don't know if he's shared this with you or not, but his department goes to each plant, I think quarterly, and does a unannounced audit uh, inspection to see what the dust issues are looking like. And so in the back of our minds, we know that's coming. So that, that um, gives us a, another reason to keep things clean and not get lazy. But it's just an ongoing thing. The other thing I would uh, say is when we turn to water, and this was something I really wished we'd have thought out. I'm not sure we could have. So we just draw our water out of our river right next to the Kansas River. And it literally eats the equipment up. So you need to think about what the water is going to do to your system as far as washing it all the time. Um, it'll, it'll eat, you'll be surprised how much that dirty water will eat the metal. And, and that's been a big issue with us, that right there. What did you do to combat that? Or was there, was there anything you could do? Well, so by the time we realized what was going on, we're so far into the game, you know, we're going to start decommissioning plants probably within the next 10 years. And even depending on how the political climate goes, maybe even sooner. Um, so right now we just fix it as we go. Um, there's, there's no sense in doing a great big capital project. Um, if we might decommission something, a whole plant five years. So anything else you mentioned, um, it's an ongoing thing, water sources, any, anything else from your experience? That's really about it. I mean, yeah, I could talk all day about it, but that's probably the main main parts on that. Well, no, that, I mean, I think that's a good place to kind of kind of wrap this interview up. I think the folks that are listening hopefully got a, a a different perspective than we would normally be able to provide on the podcast with somebody who's has this this experience. So it's it's been tremendously helpful and insightful for me, Blake. And I just want to say a sincere thank you for for coming on, for sharing, um, and for the work that you did over. I I wrote it on the other sheet of papers. You started back in '79, was that right? Yeah, coal in '79. So I appreciate the work you did over the the decades to improve safety in these industries, and I'm sure that you, along with the other folks at at the the company and and doing these initiatives, have made inroads in you know preventing injuries and then that sort of thing. So I want to say thank you there, um, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Share your time today. Well, thank you for having me. It was enjoyable. Thanks, Blake, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk again soon. All right. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and we were talking with Blake Nelson around alternatives to dust collection and coal burning applications. So this was a really interesting interview for me. Um, I learned a ton of information. As I said, it was really initiated on some conversations that we had inside the Dust Safety Academy about challenges with dust collection systems under certain operating conditions and some solutions in, in cases where you may need to reevaluate how your system designed. And that's why we, you know, had this interview. So we talked through what the processing operation looked like, which was really, you know, 
storing the the coals that comes in, bunkering it, conveyor systems, mills, and and through the burners. Um, and Blake identified that they really had this material change from one type of coal to another, which led to more dusty conditions, higher, we'll say, attrition rates during moving this material around. So when they installed their dust collection systems, and and even beforehand, they they had challenges. They were seeing challenges with their other plants that they were operating in. They're also seeing challenges in the industry. There were OSHA national emphasis program on compostable dust. There's local jurisdictions, all these different kind of pressures talking about compostable dust fires and explosions. Um, and they were able to self-identify that they, they need to change something and, and to make some changes here. That was really the the bulk of this episode was talking about what some of these changes are. So if you have a dust collection system, it's not impossible to remove it, but it is difficult. There's going to be a lot of steps involved. There might be some regulatory things that are needed. There's certainly going to be a process of testing um, and implementing new systems. In terms of, of Blake's experience, we talked about adding passive dust control. So this is better systems to to deal with transfer points on conveyors. He mentioned um, hood and spoons, using things like belt cleaners, wear liners, um, just ongoing maintenance, replacing equipment before it has a chance to wear out. These are all ways that you can passively reduce your, your we'll say, fugitive dust loading of your processing operation. Then there's some active systems. Um, you can apply water to the dust. You can apply other liquids to the dust. And you mentioned some companies and vendors that uh, that'd be really good to reach out to if you're interested in, in looking at these type of solutions. You just mentioned better washdown systems of the entire plant. So doing washdowns of the bunkers, doing washdowns of the belts is a, is a great way to then decrease the overall amount of future dust they have around. So the transfer process, I guess, is, you know, installing these systems and making sure you can keep the fugitive dust levels down below that that you had with the dust collection system. Uh, we spent a bit of time talking through a lot of the challenges with this, but then a lot of the things that need to be in place. So buy-in from the uh, executive team at the facility, just understanding of what the solutions are by talking to other folks in other plants, other facilities, or even within your industry, dealing with, we'll say, goal conflicts. So conflicts of operations, conflicts of production output versus safety versus taking on a capital project to, to make things operate more smoothly. How do you deal with some of that? Um, and then we close up with some of his recommendations. And, and the big kind of one, the big takeaway was that this is going to be an ongoing process and to consider that when you're, you know, starting down this road and, and making things safer. And I, I really appreciate Blake coming on. I appreciate the the folks at his company for the efforts they've, they've done over the years. Uh, we mentioned some other groups like the PRB Coal Users Group, which is now, I think, coalusersgroup.org that you can go to, to to learn more. So if you have any questions, we'll have a way to contact Blake, most likely in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 101. Also pull out the, the transcripts for this episode, which you can get it there as well if you're interested in, you know, the way I use them is I just download it and I control F and go to the the thing that I wanted to, to find. So if you want to talk about belt cleaning, look for belt cleaning and, and you can find that part of the interview. Uh, that's a really helpful resource that folks like to have access to after the podcast interview. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I'm looking forward to continuing to bring you um, expertise and experience from around the world in the industries handling combustible dust. 